This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. What is the Belt and Road Initiative? It is a massive global infrastructure drive uh, by the People's Republic of China and uh, state enterprise and, and private business in China. They're trying to do globally what they have already done domestically, where they have built up, you know, raised millions of people out of poverty by building, focusing on infrastructure, building infrastructure, roads, railway, uh, power plants, hospitals, schools, everything people normally take for granted, but things that didn't, didn't actually exist in, in great abundance in China and things that in many places around the world still don't exist on, on the scale that they actually need to for people to uh, raise themselves out of poverty and then to be constructive trade partners with China. Uh, a lot of people have this misconception. They, they think, um, you know, are we supposed to believe that China is doing this out of the goodness of their own heart? And the answer is no. They, they don't make a secret out of that either. They're doing it because it benefits them. If they can build a railway from China all the way to Europe and connect everything in between, that's more places their products can go and that's more places imports that they need can, can come from. And so that's essentially what it is. And they call it the Belt and Road Initiative because it's on land and also at sea. And it's, it's kind of like a, a, a translation thing, Belt and Road. They have a, a maritime new Silk Road and a, a overland uh, Silk Road, which goes back through history to where China was trading with the rest of the world through these, these trade, ancient trade routes that are now being modernized. When did the project start? Well, it, it started as um, they, they kind of rolled it out and they, they said that they had this great ambition to do this. This um, I don't know the exact year, but it has been actually going on for many years. Uh, people say that it, it's part of Xi Jinping's administration, President Xi Jinping's administration. And uh, it started out as a grand vision to do this. And then they just started building it. And there's, there's many projects now that have been completed and are operational and are benefiting everybody involved, both China and their partners uh, that are now, uh, that have access to this infrastructure. So is it more of a framework that gets buy-in from other countries? It's kind of a Belt and Road Initiative is kind of a catch-all for all of the infrastructure projects that China is doing around the world. Some, they have an official website. You can go there. You can see some of the projects. Some of them might not officially be listed on it, but then certain, certain sections of Chinese media will include it. Uh, other people might include it. So it really is. It's a catch-all for all of these infrastructure projects that China is building around the world. How many countries are part of it? Uh, I was just actually looking at the Council on Foreign Relations uh, website because I wanted to get a Western perspective of this. And uh, they wrote that to date, 147 countries accounting for two thirds of the world's population and 40% of global GDP have signed on to projects or indicated an interest in doing so. So that, that, is, that is quite a bit. I would say um, two thirds of the world's population and 40% of global GDP, that, that is a majority. <laughs> That's quite big. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's very big. And I, even though I've been following it very closely, 
I when I when I do check it specifically ahead of say an interview like this, I'm surprised by the scale of this. Things that have actually physically been built, tangible projects that you can see and use. Can you give me some examples of projects that are easily visible? Sure. So the the one that stands out most for me is the uh, the high speed rail link that is extending from Kuoming, China, and southern China through the country of Laos, which is Thailand's neighbor to the north. I'm based in Thailand. High-speed rail, uh, uh, the, the infrastructure for the high-speed rail is already under construction here in Thailand. And eventually, it's supposed to extend all the way to Malaysia and Singapore, which is at, at the very southern tip of Malaysia. Uh, so that that is a project for me that is most visible. I've seen it. I've seen the, the new central station in Bangkok that will eventually house the high-speed trains that are going to run along this line and the high-speed rail in Laos. Um, I have actually traveled through Laos before they built the railway. And before that, China also built a highway. Before that, and I, I always talk about this, this, is, this shows you what China is actually doing for these countries versus what the Western media tries to convince people of. Traveling through Laos before Chinese infrastructure projects began was a nightmare. It's a three-day trip from Kuoming to the capital of Vientiane, which is right across the border with Thailand. You're going through windy mountain roads, extremely narrow, very dangerous. You just look out the, the window of the bus and it's just straight down. And uh, uh, it's very nerve-wracking. They travel day and night. They never stop. And it still takes three days to, to go from Kuoming to Vientiane. When they built the highway, it cut that trip down to 24 hours. And now that they have the high-speed rail line, it's about 10 hours, I believe, from Vientiane to Kuoming. And already it is impacting the people in Laos in a positive way. It's allowing uh, tourism to come in. So these are people spending large amounts of money in the, the economy there. It also allows people in Laos to send their products to China. Uh, Thailand, although their, their section of the high-speed rail uh, network hasn't been finished yet. They have existing standard rail that they're already trying to, to find ways to connect uh, passengers and freight from that to the high-speed rail link to go the rest of the way to China. Now, there's also a, a rail link from China all the way to Europe, goes through Kazakhstan, Russia, Belarus, Belarus to Poland, and then to the rest of Europe. And this this actually not only allows China to send its goods to Europe and back by rail, it also has allowed Vietnam to do the same. A lot of people imagine Vietnam as some uh, prospective anti-China uh, ally of the United States, but actually they, they signed on to this. They're sending products from Vietnam by rail to Europe. So it's just those are just two examples. A lot of it, it really is just rail and roadways. There's an economic corridor through Pakistan that connects China to Pakistan, uh, to the Arabian Sea. There's another pipeline and, and roadways that connect, uh, again, Kuoming to uh, the ocean through Myanmar. And that allows China to send hydrocarbons from the Middle East through Myanmar to China without having to go through the Malacca Strait uh, between Malaysia and Indonesia. And it not only saves time, but this is also something that the U.S. has constantly threatened to close down these straits to stop Chinese maritime shipping. So the Belt and Road Initiative uh, is not only just for economic purposes, it's also a component of Chinese national security. Uh, so it's essentially land-driven. 
Well, uh, actually, there's airports that are built. There's seaports that are built. Um, it's it's more abstract because you don't see the physical connection. You just see the airport sitting there or the port sitting there. Really, uh, the the railways are the most tangible visual uh, representation of this because you you can see how the rail goes from point A to point B and everywhere in between. But yes, there's also airports that are built, uh, seaports that are built. And again, uh, the other aspect is power plants, schools, hospitals, everything else that a country needs in terms of infrastructure to be more productive. How's it funded? It's funded in two ways. You can fund it uh, through China or you, your, your own nation can fund it. So we've seen a lot of news articles across the Western media talking about debt trap diplomacy because China's saying, oh, we'll build these projects, but we'll also give you the loan. And then they claim that it's predatory lending or, or that uh, it's such a steep price to build these projects that it's not worth it. Even though, like for Lao, for example, it obviously was like already just a, a, a year or two into it, it's already obvious that it's benefiting the, the Lao economy. They will get their return on investment. The other way is for the nation itself to finance it which is the case for Thailand. So Thailand is not getting loans from China. They are financing it themselves, but they require Chinese uh, technology, the high-speed rail technology. And uh, there's a component of technology transfer. And there's also, I, I believe there's actually Thai companies that are working on building it together with China. So it, it runs the whole spectrum where China will come in and do everything to where China is just going to be giving you technical assistance or technology transfers. So far, it sounds like good old fashioned market capitalism. Yes. And also just building infrastructure, something that mm. an economy ab absolutely needs to thrive. And if you neglect your infrastructure and uh, you do like, say, the United States does where their economic activity takes place on ledgers. It doesn't take place in factories anymore or on highways or at ports. Um, it, it's a good way to look at how the West has ended up doing things versus the way it used to do things and the way China now is actually doing things. Okay, so chat to me a little bit about then the geopolitical uh, pros and cons. I would say... Uh, I can't really think of any cons in terms of just the, the Belt and Road Initiative itself. It is obviously benefiting the countries that are signing on to it. They are getting infrastructure that they could not have gotten any other way, an infrastructure that they desperately need that has been neglected for decades and decades. Like for Lao, for example, I remember being in Vientiane, the capital, and I saw these US NGOs going around in their SUVs. And instead of figuring out how to build infrastructure for this landlocked, impoverished country that the, the U.S. dropped more bombs on than actually there are people living in the country. They were hanging up banners telling them, don't use electricity, conserve electricity, so that you don't have to work with China on building another dam. And that's that was what the West has been doing for decades. And now China has come in and, and has started fixing that. So that, that is an obvious benefit. But it's the U.S. reaction to the Belt and Road Initiative that actually creates the problems. So, for example, uh, you, you're signing on to this. You want to build a high-speed rail network. The U.S. is going to back political opposition groups to oppose it and to destabilize the country, to roll it back, uh, to cancel it all together. 
and this this is going to create instability inside the the targeted nation. Uh, say in Myanmar, for example, the U.S. is heavily invested in the opposition there. When the military there ousted the U.S. client regime from power, headed by Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, the, the the armed mobs that the U.S. is backing were literally attacking the Belt and Road Initiative infrastructure itself. Uh, so that that is one example. Another example, say in Pakistan, they're they're building the China-Pakistan economic corridor, very very similar uh, road, rail ports, power plants. Uh, pipelines, and the U.S. is backing Baluchi separatists in Baluchistan, which is southwest Pakistan. They're arming, backing them, encouraging them to kill Chinese engineers, the Pakistani security forces. They even made an attempt on the Chinese ambassador to Pakistan. Um, This this has spanned many years, up to and including last year. Actually, I just saw an attack on Pakistani security forces just this week. So this is this is an ongoing project. That That is the drawback, the fact that you're going to make yourself a target of the United States in terms of regime change and US-sponsored terrorism to, to stop the Belt and Road Initiative. I think perhaps one of the concerns from a Western perspective is that it, it would appear that China is trying to gain influence over global affairs. Yes, I mean, they, they almost certainly are gaining tremendous influence, but they're going about it in an entirely different way than the West has. So the way the West has gained influence over other nations is by infiltrating their internal political affairs in violation of international law. The way China is doing it is simply doing business uh, building these infrastructure projects so that they can do even more business. And they have a, the golden rule of non-interference, of not having any sort of preconditions politically for working together with another nation on these projects. They don't care what kind of government you have, what type of economic system you subscribe to, uh, where you are on social, cultural issues. They don't care. They just want to do business. So they're, they're gaining influence like that. In, in that form versus the way the U.S. has uh, actually has maintained influence over the world through political infiltration, coercion, setting up client regimes and dictating to people around the world how to live their lives. So as I understand it, it's currently just mapped out for Asia and a bit of Europe and, and some of the Middle East. Is that right? There's nothing for Africa. I, I think uh, actually the projects that China is working on in Africa are part of the Belt and Road Initiative. At least, at least in Kenya, there were, there are a lot of uh, rail projects that are mm-hmm. ongoing, uh, and that is that is part of it. I think officially, and and there's many other projects on the continent that I think people would unofficially lump into the Belt and Road Initiative because it serves the same purpose of creating interconnectivity in terms of transportation, moving people and goods, and that fits into the, the entire vision of the Belt and Road Initiative. But ultimately, all roads lead to China. Yes, because China is the one building them all. So they obviously want it to lead to China. But when you, when you look at the map of the Belt and Road Initiative, I mean, it's okay, somewhere all the way in Europe to China, there's an awful lot in between that is being connected as well. So, I mean, that's that's what it is. It's it's China putting itself in, in the center of the world, pragmatically, economically, in terms of doing business and doing it 
in a way entirely different than the West has been doing it. This component of non-interference, uh, I would say the primacy of non-interference, the primacy of nat uh, national sovereignty, that is the key to the way China conducts its business with other nations. How transparent is the whole process? Uh, it depends on what you mean by transparency. I mean, say, for example, here in Thailand, everything was very open. Uh, the, the government is able to put out as much information about the project as it wants to. Uh, people are free to pressure the government into putting out more information if they're dissatisfied with it. Uh, the Belt and Road, I mean, there's a Belt and Road portal run by the Chinese government. They have a lot of information there that people can go look at. And what's interesting is that when you do go to, say, the CFR's website and the, the web page about the Belt and Road Initiative, a lot of what they're saying matches with what China itself is saying about the project. So, uh, and, and you have to understand that the CFR, for people that don't know, this is a U.S. government and corporate financier funded think tank. They, they are anti-China. They churn out entire papers about encircling, containing, dividing, and destroying China. But they, they are at least admitting that, okay, the Belt and Road Project is like this. What, what can we do to compete against it? And then they, they get into those options. But they're, at least they're admitting what it actually is. Um, there are certain elements of the debt trap diplomacy that they mention, but uh, people are free to look into that on their own and, and see... Uh, how true or untrue that is. I've I've looked into it. it. It really is not true. But that whole debt trap thing seems to be a bit of a an overplay because I mean the IMF is does exactly that. So does the World Bank. Yes, exactly. And what they're what they're really upset about is China is coming in with an alternative mm. that everyone is obviously going to choose over the IMF and the World Bank. And so that upsets them. So they're they're willing to lie about it, smear it, undermine it, even employ terrorism to physically destroy it so that they can get back to their own actual predatory lending, which, which is exactly what I mean, it's all projection. The IMF, the World Bank, that is what uh, they were doing. And and one of the more recent stories, and I covered this was uh, uh, Sri Lanka. People remember they had this economic meltdown. They had these protests. There was a, a change in the government and they were citing Chinese debt trap diplomacy. But if you read, say, DW from Germany or uh, Nikkei Asia, which is, you know, it's, supposed, it's supposedly a Japanese uh, media platform, but it's very pro-Western. They admit that China only held about 10% of the, the debt in Sri Lanka, most of it was Western-based financial institutions, BlackRock, Alliance, UBS, HSBC, JP Morgan Chase, and Prudential. 47% uh, was held by them, only 10% by China. Uh, there was 13% by the Western, the, the Western-backed Asian Development Bank. It says it's Asian Development Bank, but it's Western interests that created it to do predatory lending specifically in Asia. So when, when you actually break down the numbers, uh, Sri Lanka had this problem because of the West predatory lending, not, not Chinese debt trap diplomacy or its Belt and Road Initiative. Just uh, as a segue, you mentioned BlackRock. What sort of influence do those sorts of mega corps have in China? Their influence in China? 
Well, I, I would assume it's because China wants to engage with Western economies and BlackRock dominates these Western economies. So they have uh, an unwarranted amount of influence over that entire process. I mean, I, I would have to drill down on that specifically, which which I haven't actually done yet. But that's that's what I would imagine. If you look at, say, the Council on Foreign Relations, the Brookings Institution, CSIS, all of these think tanks are funded by corporations and financial institutions like BlackRock. So all of these anti-China papers you see coming out, it's because of organizations like BlackRock funding these, these policymakers to create this anti-China policy. I'm not a, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm not a climate change alarmist at all. But if I were, what would be the impact on the environment um, and pollution, etc., by the uh, Belt and Road Initiative? A lot of the power plants that China is building are, for example, coal-based. Uh, a lot of this is about moving hydrocarbons around. So if you're really worried about that, uh, that might be um, one aspect that, that would alarm you. But you, people have to remember, these are nations that have been left behind. They, they don't have enough electricity, and this is a way to produce it. There really is no practical way to do it, or China would be doing it. They're doing the most practic practical, effective way to bring electricity, transportation, schools, and hospitals into these areas. And it just so happens that coal, oil, other, other forms of hydrocarbon, they're still the most effective way of doing this. I say that as an African, so I know... I know about how these things work. I mean, having renewables running African economies is just absurd. Yeah, the, the technology is not there yet. And it's not as if China doesn't care about that. They do plenty of research and development into it. They have plenty of solar projects, hydro uh, power. Actually, uh, a lot of countries in Southeast Asia have benefited from Chinese built hydropower dams, which do pr actually provide you know, supposedly renewable energy for the region. It, it's very effective, but as, as in terms of solar and uh, other means, it's, it's just not there yet. They're working on it, but it's not there yet. And because they're practical, they're not going to pin everything on these unproven technologies. They're going to work with what has been proven. Well, let's bring in the, uh, the one that always comes up, slavery, terrible labor, all that sort of thing. Uh, people can go to videos online about these projects being being built. It's not it's not like how the U.S. built their Continental Railroad. Uh, these are professional engineers and a professional workforce that come in and build these. And you could just w look at the videos and look at the working conditions with, with your own eyes and and see it. Um, and and really, I mean, that's all I can say. I mean, I saw the highways in Laos under construction as I was on these windy, twisty roads. And it was by professional construction crews brought in by China. I'm guessing this entire initiative connects more people, more cultures, more ethnic groups, etc. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and what you're doing is you're enabling more and more people to travel to different places as tourists, but also to work together with other people in terms of business. So obviously, there's going to be an acceleration of cultural exchange, uh, people becoming more aware of 
cultures, customs, um, just the conditions that people live in in different parts of the world. If, if you go to the, the Belt and Road portal uh, on the Chinese government's official website, they show all of these projects that they're doing in Africa, how they bring African businesses to China, uh, to these expos to uh, make the Chinese markets more aware of their products. I mean, that is a huge component of Belt and Road Initiative. So it's this, it's, glo it's globalization, but with the primacy of national sovereignty at the center of it, it kind of, it kind of turns Western style globalism where they try to make everyone the same. It, it kind of turns it on its head. It, what you see instead is a celebration of differences between cultures and, and people learning from each other rather than imposing what they think is superior onto the other, which, which I think is the Western model. It definitely seems like a threat to how the West currently does things. Yes, it's a, it's a fatal threat. It is an existential threat to well, Western hegemony. Not, not to the West. The West, if the West uh, was reasonable, if they went back to first principles and they said to themselves, what, what are we actually doing? What is the best way for us to thrive on the planet today? They would be working with China. They would be working on projects that complement the Belt and Road Initiative. But because this is going to change the dynamics around the globe entirely, is going to undermine their hegemony, they're utterly opposed to it. And, and as I've said before, they are actually working on backing terrorists to physically destroy it. That is how serious they are about uh, countering it. Because because they, they, they have, we've heard, uh, say, like President Joe Biden, sabotage, destroy, oh, uh, kill wow. the workers. Yeah, sure. I mean, literally blowing it up and killing the people involved in building it. So uh, we've heard President Joe Biden talk about Build Back Better Worlds. Before that, there was a project called Blue Dot, which no one remembers because it's nonsense. And the Build Back Better World, I think the last time I checked, I, also on the CFR website, they said, I think it has a total of $6 million in commitments, which when you're talking about a global infrastructure network, that's nothing that will buy you absolutely nothing. So it, it's a joke. What it is, it's a smokescreen for the US and its allies to pursue this terrorism, uh, political opposition, this campaign of destabilization to uh, derail the project physically destroy it or uh, ruin the ties between nations that are working with China on it. Uh, so that, that is the way the US and its allies are actually countering the Belt and Road Initiative. They have no way of actually competing against it. Uh, they could, I think in time, contribute to it, but that's just something that they're not even considering. How does the private sector in China benefit from the BRI? I mean, they, they're going to get access to global markets through the infrastructure uh, built through the, the Belt and Road Initiative. So, I mean, people imagine China as it's this communist country and everything is owned by the state, but it simply isn't true. They have a lot of private enterprise. They make products, they sell them around the world. And through the Belt and Road Initiative, they're able to get access to many more markets. It's a, it's a no brainer. It's something the West should have been doing all along. Uh, but but they didn't, but now China is actually doing it. And so say here in Thailand, uh, the US backed opposition uh, led by two billionaires, one of them is Tanaton Juang Grung Get. He actually went to the United States, I believe in 2018, before the, the 2019 general election. He met with the State Department, USAID, et cetera. But he also went to the, the Virgin Hyperloop testing ground in, I think it's Arizona. And this is this is a test track this 
Hyperloop technology is unproven, hasn't moved any passengers anywhere, won't for many years to come, if ever it does. He, he went there, he came back to Thailand and he announced that you know his intention, if he ever becomes prime minister, is to cancel the high-speed rail project with China and use Hyperloop instead. But if Hyperloop is basically science fiction, what he's saying is we're just not going to build any infrastructure. We're just not going to build anything. We would rather build nothing and uh, remain stagnant than work with China. And he literally said that we're too close to China. We need to pivot back to the US, Europe, and Japan. I mean, you could almost see the puppet strings attached when he was saying this. And, and the thing is, okay, you turn back toward the US, Europe, and Japan. What, what are they going to build for you that is as good or better than what China is offering? And the answer is nothing. There's nothing that, that they have to offer China. Uh, Japan does have high-speed rail technology proven, absolutely, but it's unfeasible. I, I don't, I, I'm not sure if they've ever built a high-speed rail network anywhere outside of Japan. Maybe, maybe they have, but I could only imagine that it would be uh, more bureaucracy, uh, higher costs than what China is offering. Is there any Western interest, funnily enough, in the BRI? Actually, we've, we've seen some countries come out and express interest uh, regarding the Belt and Road Initiative. I think Italy actually at one point signed on to some aspect of it, maybe just signing some sort of uh, memorandum of interest or something. I, I don't know. Uh, but I do remember that in the news. But the, the thing is, the, the nations in Europe do not have their national sovereignty. So even if Italy decided that that was in their best interest, the, the EU, the, the European Union as a bureaucracy would say no, because the United States told them no, and that would be that. And they would just find ways of sabotaging and, and rolling it back. Now, the there is a rail link between China to Europe. But now with the the special military operation in Ukraine, um, they, they have closed the border between Belarus and Poland. So that, now all of that traffic that was going through there has been cut off. So it's the West through a series of very deliberate actions, sabotaging this in, in every way. Okay, literally with terrorists and, and blowing it up, but also legally through sanctions and through political pressure and coercion on nations that are trying to work with China on this, including nations in the West. So... What you're saying is that the initiative would gladly go into any country that shows interest because it doesn't want to create an enemy, but Western interests are saying, no, 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 we don't want to have that common denominator with China. Absolutely. So if the United States said tomorrow, uh, it would be great for us to have high-speed rail in our country to replace Amtrak, which, which is dysfunctional and a bit of a disgrace. China come in and do it. And they would. They would come in and they would do it. And they would work with the United States, including in, in terms of technology transfer, financing, just as they did here in Thailand. And they would work out a deal and they would start doing it. They, they, again, China does not care what your political system is, your economic system. They just want to do business and they're willing to do business with anyone. Uh, again, like, like Vietnam has, has been uh, somewhat eager to join the United States in certain anti-China activities, but China still works with Vietnam on, on the Belt and Road Initiative. They built uh, uh, the, the first metro um, either in uh, Ho Chi Minh, I think it's Ho Chi Minh City. The, the first metro there was built by uh, China. 
And so they, they're willing to work with Vietnam despite this, this belligerence that they're expressing as part of this, this whole influence that the West is trying to maintain in the region. What role has digital connectivity played in the initiative? It's uh, actually, it's becoming a bigger and bigger component. So it, it, at first it started out as maritime and uh, land transit uh, routes, but now obviously information technology is so important. That is a big component of it. So uh, we hear a lot about 5G. Uh, China leads the world in 5G technology and they're setting up 5G networks in, in partner nations. As a matter of fact, I think uh, in Thailand, it is China, Huawei, that is doing that here. Uh, I think uh, we've actually, we've seen the US pressure nations, even in, in Europe, again, it goes back to this coercing Europe to ditch Huawei in favor of, of Western companies trying to roll out this technology. And all it does is cause delays because they're not ready to implement it, China is. And I forgot to ask you about the influence of the IMF and World Bank in these projects and China for that matter, how they all connected, if they are. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if they are connected at all. I'd have to take a closer look at that, but uh, at least on the outside looking in, it seems as if, again, the IMF, the World Bank, they see this whole initiative, the whole way China is doing business as a threat to their business model. Uh, again, if you're offering loans that don't result in tangible infrastructure, massive debt, and then uh, you know the control of your country by the West versus China that's going to build the infrastructure for you. You're going to have the physical infrastructure, whether there's financial problems or not. So for example, uh, Sri Lanka, because of their debt situation, and again, because of debt the West holds, um, they had this port that they were working on with China and because they could not pay China, China uh, got a lease on it for, I think it's like 19, 98 years, something like that. And people will say, aha, see, China tricked them, tricked them, put them in debt, and now they own the port. But that port is in Sri Lanka and still going to benefit the people, the economy there. What about the IMF and World Bank? What are they building around the world? I, I just don't see it. Uh, here in Southeast Asia in the 1990s, there was a, a big IMF crisis. And all you see is uh, maybe some commercial high rises that were being built that had, to, that had to stop. There was no significant infrastructure that was actually going to benefit people in the country that was being funded by the IMF. So it, it was it's a very transparent scheme and people signed on to it because they had no choice, but now they do have a choice. So I, I think that's where the IMF and, and the World Bank fit into all of this. Has it had any political influence, positively or negatively, across the world? I guess it depends on what your perspective is. If you're a Westerner and you believe in Western hegemony over the planet, obviously it's very negative. Again, go, go back to Laos. It was, it was a landlocked, impoverished country that the Western NGOs were they're just having their way in Vientiane, going wherever they want, uh, saying and doing whatever they want. Now that Laos has this high-speed rail line, now that they have a highway, now that their economy is linked to the rest of China, um, also Thailand and Vietnam have been investing heavily in, in Laos. Now they have options 
They don't have to subordinate themselves to whatever the West says to them. They have options. As a matter of fact, they don't have to care about the West at all because all of their business now is going to be here in Asia, which only makes sense. Why, why, why should Lao primarily be doing business with countries on the other side of the world doesn't, doesn't even make sense. So I, I think that's, that is the main political impact. It is offering nations an alternative to Western hegemony and it's allowing nations to get out from under the shadow of Western hegemony, where it, before they had no options, now they're able to protect their sovereignty without fear of sanctions, because now they have economic connections elsewhere with nations that are not going to cut them off. This is obviously a long game, isn't it? Absolutely. It's been going on for many years. Uh, when I went through Laos, they were building the, the highway, not even the high-speed rail line yet. That was 2007. So, I mean, just think of the timeline there. They just finished the high-speed rail line, I think it was early this year. And uh, the, the high-speed rail line here in Thailand isn't even finished yet. So it is, it's going to take many years for these projects to be completed. And in the meantime, we can see the U.S. continuing to try to, to block the BRI's progress. Uh, so again, here in Thailand, there's an opposition backed by the U.S. getting into power who has openly expressed interest in, in rolling back ties with China. So that I, I think they will delay it. I don't think they'll be ultimately able to stop it because, again, at the end of the day, the West simply does not have an alternative. Uh, and the, the greediest people in any given country, they're going to be thinking about their own material best interests. And right now, China is offering, offering them a better deal. It does seem to me, though, that the alternative is simply to see this thing as a good idea and work with it rather than oppose it. Absolutely. Uh, I've, I've often said that the United States, to believe that it should maintain hegemony over the world or that it should prevent China from surpassing the United States. This is utterly irrational. It makes absolutely no sense. When you look at the numbers, China has four times the population of the U.S., larger industrial base. As it has a huge country geographically. Uh, it, they graduate millions more in, in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics than the U.S. So they have four times the population, but they graduate eight times the, the STEM graduates. It's, it, is a, it is a force that cannot be stopped. And the U.S. shouldn't even be trying. It would be like uh, uh, Portugal complaining about Germany having a larger economy. It just doesn't make any sense. The U.S. would still be a tremendously powerful and influential country if they could find a way to constructively work with China and, and all other nations on Earth, rather than this stubborn, irrational, and unsustainable policy of trying to assert themselves over all other nations on Earth. If you see an anti-China story or you see some terrorism pop up somewhere around the globe, someplace you're not very familiar with, like, say, southwest Pakistan, just get a map out of the Belt and Road Initiative and uh, see where the U.S. is trying to literally blow it up. Uh, I mean, that that is what they're doing. Uh, we, we previously talked about Xinjiang and the supposed uh, genocide of the Uyghurs. And if you look at the Belt and Road Initiative map, it is a Xinjiang is a major junction for this rail line that goes uh, uh, wet, uh, toward the rest of Europe. So 
that's what they're doing. That's literally what they're doing. They're, they have the map out and they say, which ethnic groups here can we arm and fund to, to slow this down or stop it entirely? Which political opposition parties can we get into power that are going to, no matter how little sense it makes, uh, have be shameless enough to want to cancel it and uh, leave their country without infrastructure. And that's what they're doing. They're doing it all around the globe. They're doing it here in Southeast Asia. I've been documenting it for years now. Uh, they're in Pakistan doing it in, in Myanmar, the, the terrorist U.S. is backing there. Even the separatist groups inside China itself, a lot of this is based on targeting the Belt and Road Initiative. So it's when, when people really objectively look at it, it's a very positive thing that is being built. Uh, what it's doing is creating a better balance of power. A lot of people are afraid that China is just going to be the next United States. But the Belt and Road Initiative is bef before China even rises and reaches that point, they are building these networks and this infrastructure in other countries that are ultimately going to make those countries stronger economically, also militarily, also politically. What they're doing is creating a, a balance of power rather than concentrating power in their own hands. That is what the BRI is all about. That's what makes it different than how the U.S. rose to power and extended its influence globally. So I, I, if, if I have to add something else, that, that would be it. So just keep in mind U.S. efforts to sabotage it and also keep in mind the global balance of power that it's creating. And that, that's very deliberate, by the way. Be Beijing is doing that very deliberately. That's what multipolarism is all about. So an, an offshoot of the Belt and Road Initiative is uh, more competition globally. Yes, they, they will create more competition globally. They're connecting uh, countries, their economies to to China. They There will be competition and that they're, they're just doing business. So if, if things just so happen to be in a certain country where they are, they are out competing Chinese businesses, then they will export more from that country. And if they can't, then these countries will be importing more from China. And you know we can see many examples of that in, in different countries regarding different industries that play to one nation's strengths versus another. Based on the fact that we have this U.S. or Western-backed proxy war in Ukraine, could something like this prop up in Taiwan? Taiwan is the cornerstone of U.S. encirclement and containment policy regarding China. And they've been at this for decades, uh, where officially the State Department recognizes Chinese sovereignty over Taiwan, uh, but unofficially they, they have been slowly, incrementally placing U.S. troops on the island. They're encouraging political separatism in Taipei. And uh, all, all of this is meant to serve as yet another proxy war that the U.S. will try to internationalize, build a coalition. Uh, it puts sanctions on China, and inevitably that is going to impact the Belt and Road Initiative because there will be additional pressure on all of these nations already cooperating with China to, to stop cooperating with them or face the penalty. Now, the, the U.S. has a hard time justifying that now, but if they could create a crisis regarding Taiwan and convince the world that somehow it's China's fault for reasserting their own sovereignty over their own islands, uh, then that that is something that they think uh, might might help them in the future. Okay, Brian, how can I follow your work? I, 
right now, just go to YouTube, type in the new Atlas and in the video description of each video, there are other places you can find and follow my work. And I, I would suggest people follow me on Telegram because I, I've started losing videos on YouTube um, because of political censorship. So it's just inevitable. I post all of my videos on Telegram. They're also backed up on Rumble and Odyssey, but all, all of the links right now are under all of my YouTube videos. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.